Hey everybody, this is Mike Milner with Eat to Perform, and we have a special podcast episode for you guys. I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Brad Dieter. How's it going, Doc? I'm good, man. It's a happy Tuesday after Memorial Day. Yes, yes, definitely. I'm super excited about our guest today. Um, I know you've been following his work for a long time. I have as well. Uh, So... Christian Thibodeau, welcome. Thanks for joining us, man. How are you? I'm pretty good. Actually, I'm way ahead of you. It's Wednesday here, so I'm <laughs> going to have some work to catch up to. Yeah, we, you got your time traveling on us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I always wanted to do that. Now it's a reality. <laughs> so, yeah, awesome. since Christian's actually like in the future right now in Australia, it's Wednesday, uh, which works mm-hmm. out nicely because I really think the work that he's doing is kind of the future of where the fitness industry is heading. Um, so for those who haven't been following you, if you just want to give us a little bit of your background and your story and how you started and kind of evolved in the industry. Well, uh, I guess if you condense it to like a very short introduction, it sounds like pretty decent, but in reality, I was just lucky to be honest. Uh, most coaches actually struggle to start making a living or getting uh, cool clientele to work with. I started working as a coach uh, when I was 20. Uh, Actually, at the time, I was just done with my uh, uh, lousy American football career. Uh, I was a really lousy player, so I switched to Olympic weightlifting. And it's funny because I was uh, in one of the seminars I gave uh, last weekend. I said, you know, Olympic lifting really doesn't fit my psychological profile, which is actually the the, the topic of my presentations. Uh, but the only reason why I started doing Olympic weightlifting is that I always wanted to be admired for my strength, and I was never strong to start with. <laughs> so, uh, at the time, uh, Olympic weightlifting was really not popular in Canada. Maybe like it was. I don't know, in the provincial competition, maybe like 20 lifters or something like that. So I said, well, I'm not that strong. Uh, I'm not built for strength, but I'm decently explosive. And since nobody's competing on Olympic weightlifting, I can easily claim to be one of the best in the country or one of the best in the province. So that's the real reason I started Olympic weightlifting. But that actually helped me uh, get my first gig as a strength coach because the guy who was coaching me when I was um, playing football was also a local strength coach and he was uh, very well respected and, and worked with a lot of professional athletes, hockey players, Olympians, stuff like that. And uh, he, he kind of took me under his wing. So I, I w- he was the one designing the program and I was the one uh, doing the, on, uh, the on-site supervision, coaching the Olympic lifts, for example, and making sure the athletes don't mess up. So right when I was 20, I started working with athletes right off the bat. And after that, uh, funny enough, my second job came about three months later. Uh, like, believe it or not, I actually was a competitive golf player. Uh, again, to understand all the sports I-, I did as a kid, you have to understand that I had a distinct need to be respected and admired. That is my actual psychological profile. So I played basically every sport I could get my hand to because I wanted to be good at something and it actually ended up being bad at everything. But still, I, I did play golf and the guy who was my coach back then was also a, a personal trainer and he worked with figure skaters and he wanted to introduce the Olympic lifts to the, the skaters, which include included several national champions, even one that we eventually uh, Help on a silver medal at the Olympics. 
Um, so that was my second group of athletes. So at, right at 20, I was working with pro hockey players, uh, Olympic Olympic athletes, stuff like that. Even though I was, to be honest, like a really, really bad coach. I mean, I'm very little knowledge, actually, but uh, that was probably good enough for these athletes. But as far as uh, then, from then on, I always had, again, when you understand how I work, is I always felt the need to be admired, respected, and be well well seen by other people and while not actually being anything special. Uh, so that's why I was always attracted to writing, uh, to teaching, share information because um, I always wanted that respect. So it really motivated me to work hard on my craft as a writer, as a presenter, always giving 100%. So even when I wasn't like that knowledgeable, the fact that I would always invest myself 100% actually led to results. Because I really believe that when it comes to training, there are only two really important things in a gym. Uh, the first thing is training super hard with 100% focus. And the second thing is fixing your weaknesses. Now, if you are motivated, if you believe in what you're doing, if you have passion for what you're doing, then you're going to train hard, you're going to work hard. And I believe that it's the job of the coach, well, it's one of his job, really. Uh, to make sure that the client is motivated and, and works hard. And if you believe in your coach, then that's going to happen. I believe that the training methods are important, but only to keep the athlete motivated. So even though I was, to be honest, a very average coach for the first probably five or ten years or even of my career, I got great results just because I was good at, at connecting with athletes. And I think that's one of the most misunderstood elements of coaching. And of course, if I eventually became kind of tired of being a fraud, I mean, it's cool to get results because it's cool to get results because you're, you're motivating athletes. But when you are talking with guys like on the highest level and they can kind of see right through you. So it's one thing to get the respect of the people who read your articles or just want to get big and strong. But then I wanted more. So I wanted the respect of people who are well respected in, this, in the industry, people who are super knowledgeable. And that's when I, I decided to really like, I want to take my craft up a notch and I accepted my weaknesses, I accepted my lack, my, 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 my problem areas, the fact that I, I was probably seen as better than I really was and I decided to fix that uh, and, and find, find my niche and uh, change a lot of things in my life and I think I became a better coach and also a better person for it. Uh, of course, along the way came many uh, like lucky breaks, like uh, becoming a, a writer for Team Nation, and then they decided to make me like a staff writer, really pushing me hard. That really helped. Uh, of course, the fact that I work with good athletes from the beginning also helped me uh, get other contracts afterwards. But I never actually used uh, the athletes I work with um, to try to gain or anything. I think the main reason is that, and again, the more we're going to talk, I think you're going to get what my profile is, is that I'm naturally more of an insecure person. Uh, my self-confidence level is fairly low. I'm a, I'm a reward dependent. I really need to feel uh, respected, admired, to feel confident about myself. And the fact is that uh, I never felt really satisfied with my own knowledge, with my own competency. So I always never did wanted to use other people's success to bring myself up and I still don't. I mean sometimes I will use athletes I work with because there are some funny stories to tell but I never give names uh, not because I don't have any it's just because I to me name drop 
think is the worst thing that you can do as a coach, in my opinion. But again, that's just. So that's an introduction. I mean, this is probably going to go off the like training topic, but I think you brought up something really interesting. Is you know, you're somebody who drives on and really looks for external validation from people, right? Yes. And you've kind of acknowledged that that's who you are, and that's a pretty powerful thing. But then you've also had to put yourself out there in a very public sphere in an industry that's hypercritical. So how have you yeah. kind of balanced this fear of people are going to, you know, call me out on my BS or tell me I'm stupid with also, you know, having the like the guts to put yourself out there to seek that validation? What has kind of let you, I mean, you're basically pulling from two opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. So how have you kind of been able well, to do that? I think that, well, when I first started, I probably was too dumb to realize that I wasn't that good. Yeah. So I, even though you know, I, I didn't need the external validation, I mean, when I started, of course, like social media didn't exist. Uh, the, the, the internet, like, was in its infancy. You had like very few actual forums to discuss, um, and so, so I, it wasn't as bad as today. But there were still some issues. I remember, right? Um, for example, I used to be, uh, let's say, um, a little bit fluffier physically, like more of a all Olympic lifter build, or just a, the, the physique of a guy who likes to eat crap and justify it by, I want to be strong. Um, and I, I remember I wrote an article, it was called the, um, I think it's the other kind of snatch. One of, one of the first articles I wrote for T-Nation, and I had pictures of myself with air and a belly. And back then, they, the forums weren't that popular, but they had readers' feedback that they would post every single week. And I remember one uh, feedback letter was, gosh, you will really let anybody write articles for teenagers because why <laughs> he just, doesn't even look like he trains. So that actually motivated me to, like, for the first time ever, actually go on a, on a fat loss diet and get in decent shape. So in, in a way, uh, being self-conscious actually helped me uh, like build my brand by becoming in better shape, but man, it, it's still a struggle. I, I had um, a photo shoot last November for my new website, and I can't tell you how many times I, I was on the phone with my business partner, almost crying to postpone the photo shoot. I, I don't want to do it. I don't want. I look like crap. I I won't do it. I look like crap. I mean, seriously, I mean, people look at me and say, "Well, he's that big training expert." I mean, I'm so insecure. I'm that. Me and Paul Carter, we could write books about being insecure and still make it in the fitness industry. But I think that the reason is that I actually really love talking to people. And um, I'm not afraid of admitting when I'm wrong. I don't need to be right. I have zero ego, to be honest. Uh, I don't care who has the truth. I just want to learn that to be able to use it by, for myself and my, and my clients. Um, so when the forums became a lot more popular, I would actually always interact even with the haters and I would never have a conflictual attitude. Uh, so it, that's not who I am. So in a way, I think that being confronted oftentimes probably helped me gain some popularity because they saw that I was a genuine person. I wasn't in this to make money. I'm not in this uh, just to be seen as the best in the world. That's just not who I am. Uh, I really just want to help people. And people, they are willing to accept many shortcomings when you yourself are capable of admitting those shortcomings, but then doing something about it. 
to me, there is only one thing I don't tolerate, it's arrogance. I don't tolerate arrogance in myself and on other people. So I will, I will always tell it like it is. Of course, sometimes like, you know how the, the fitness industry goes, right? I mean, they're editing process and editorial line. So I'm, what I say is not always exactly what I wrote initially, for example. But uh, you know how it is, right? <laughs> but, uh, but, but if you talk to me, if you interact with me on the forum, you know, I'm, I have no filter. I will always say exactly what I believe. I'm not saying it's the truth. Somebody might actually prove me wrong in the future, but it's always exactly what I believe at the moment anyway. Yeah, that's great. And I think an interesting theme is as an athlete and as a trainer, um, you've kind of looked at things from the psychology standpoint of how you connect with people and um, just having an impact on, you know, mindset. And uh, where did that that kind of psychological side of it come about? And how did you start connecting that with training, which you don't see a lot of um, coaches do? I started when I was about six years old. Uh, <laughs> well, both my parents are psychologists, so, so it's, I, I'm not saying it's genetics, but it was always my, my upbringing. I also worked in, uh, in my parents' office for, for two years, basically correcting personal, uh, personality tests, for example. That was my main job. Um, but really, uh, even when I was a teenager, all right, the, the way I could describe me is I was the eternal best friend. Uh, you know the guy who looks like super average and is the always the best friend of all the girls right with the exception that i wasn't gay but i was i was the, the guy who was <laughs> helping them with their problems i was always being their confident i would solve relationship problems otherwise having zero relationship of myself of course i would always fall in love with the girls and they would always see me as the best friend but right after that i was I always in touch with um, helping people with their personal problems. I have I had a pretty good understanding of how human beings work. I think uh, I, I'm I, uh, I'm good at reading people, and I'm good at making one-on-one relationships. I really suck in social settings. If you put me in a bar, uh, I'm I'm the one that will completely disappear. Uh, I'm not someone who loves. Uh, like groups meeting where I don't know these people. For example, I'm, and that's one thing I mentioned during my, my, my seminars is my own personality, I'm, I'm a, what I call a reward dependent type B, meaning that I have low GABA, so lower self-esteem, more anxiety. Uh, I'm great at reading social cues, I'm great at reading people and making strong one-on-one -on -one connection. But because of that, lower self-esteem and higher anxiety level, what happens is that I still need to feel respected, admired, to feel good about myself and feel confident. But because of my lower level of confidence and higher anxiety, uh, if I don't feel like I have it right away in the situation, uh, I will close up on myself instead of trying to go and get it. So if I, if I walk, for example, uh, in a room where I'm gonna give a seminar, and I know that these people know who I am and have at least a little bit of respect for me, then I'm, I'm super confident. I'm comfortable and I will be extroverted. I'm good at reading people and making jokes. But if I walk into a bar and none of these people know who I am, I will just completely disappear. I will be looking for that one person that I know and I will basically 
cling onto that person for the whole or the whole time. If I go to a restaurant with my wife and she has to go to the bathroom, those three minutes where I'm alone at the table are the worst three minutes in my life because I feel like all of these people think I'm a loser. I, I'm I'm that messed up. But again, that that is how I function, and everybody has a personality, and, and I have a secret for all of those in the relationship. Uh, people don't change, right? You can modify your behavior uh, based on how you are feeling. You can learn to work with your triggers, but you will not change how you are emotionally responding to something. You can only change how you are responding and acting on that emotion. Uh, so the more you accept who you are, and the better you learn to work with who you are, the better result and the happier you're gonna get. I remember when I made that that realization myself, I mean, and that's gonna be a, like a little bit of a personal story. Uh, many people don't know this about me, but um, many years ago I was, I was actually like into rave parties. Uh, it, it goes with my psychological profile. I'm a reward dependent, meaning that my my dominant neurotransmitter is no adrenaline or adrenaline, which is my baseline level is low, which explains my lower level of confidence. But as soon as it increases a bit, since my receptors are hypersensitive to it, then it just magnifies the response. So personally, when I when I was younger and I was I wasn't like a drug addict, but when I went to rave party and I took speed, for example, speed didn't speed me up. Speed made me confident, made me feel good about myself because it triggered uh, the the neurotransmitter that that drove me. So after one of these things where I actually abused, I, mean, I had several problems. I, I was like, my, my nervous system was messed up for a whole week. I, I called my mother, who was a psychologist, and she, she came to see me. And we discussed, for, we discussed my, my own personality for about three hours. She made me realize what my triggers were because I had no idea. I mean, I was really lost at the time. People see me on the internet, so uh, he's so smart, man. He's, he knows everything about training. Well, that person that you saw on the internet was sad, was always depressive, had severe uh, self-confidence issues, I was really unhappy, I was a bad husband, uh, all these things, I mean, I, I was not a good human being. Until that day, about six years ago, I spent about an hour crying in my, my mother's arms when I realized, but she just mentioned, this is how you are, and it just like, boom. I realized it all of us, and that's really tough to do because you have to confront exactly who you are, who you, what your demons are. But from that day on, my personality changed completely. I mean, I still have the same emotional response because I still have my same neurotransmitter balance that I was, but now I'm actually a good person and I'm at peace with myself. And I, with the presentations I'm making now, of course I still talk about training, training is my passion, but I connect it with your personality. So different personality would love different type of training. And to me, enjoying the type of training you are doing is really important to be motivated to train hard. Uh, and uh, that's only the, the tip of the iceberg because if you play with your neurotransmitter levels, you avoid crashing, you avoid, for example, if you have a naturally low dopamine level and you crash it, by producing too much adrenaline during training, because uh, of course dopamine is a precursor to adrenaline, uh, then you crash your dopamine, you're gonna have workout hangover, you can't train hard for several days because you just feel like crap, you feel depressed. Uh, what if you naturally have low serotonin levels and you go on a low carbs diet? 
Well, then you might have depression-like symptoms. You can't focus. So, so when you know, well, your personality profile gives us clues on which neurotransmitter are high or low. It's not a perfect science, but it gives us clues, uh, and it tells us which training strategy or nutritional approaches might be better for you. I'm not saying it's the always 100% accurate, but it's a great starting point. Now, I think that most of us coaches who've been working with tons of clients found this instinctively. We know that some people like heavy lifting. We know some people just like to move the most weight from point A to point B. Others really want to feel that strong mind-muscle connection. Um, and really, that is okay. I mean, just find the way that you enjoy training. I really hate when I hear people say, <clears throat> find the five exercises you hate the most and make sure that they are in every program you do because it's gonna make whatever. It personally, all right, I understand the logic, right? If you don't like something, it means you suck at it. If you suck at it, it's a weak point. I get it, you wanna fix your weak points. But I'm sure there are ways of fixing your weak points that doesn't make you want to hate your training session. Right? And it's fine, I mean, many of us, right, there are many like very popular uh, like celebrities program on the internet. For example, let's say 531 by, by, by Jim Wender. Great program, right? Great program has, has given tons of people amazing results, super popular. If I do it, I will shoot myself and stop training forever. <laughs> it's not saying it's not a good program. It's just that it doesn't motivate me. I actually tried to do it. I, I stuck with it for a week. And some people have been on it for two years and they're still making progress. So if, right, Einstein used to say that everybody's a genius, but if you judge a fish by its capacity to climb a tree, it will, be, it will believe his whole life that it's stupid. Well, if, right, I'm saying, well, 531 is the best training program ever. You try it, you don't get results because you don't, you're not motivated by it, but you, you start to believe that you have bad genetics for muscle growth. Let's say I, say I tell you, well, German volume training is the best pure hypertrophy program. You do it, you actually lose muscle mass because you overproduce cortisol on it because it doesn't fit your profile. You create too much of an anxiety response to it. Well, you will believe that you don't have the genetics to muscle growth. Everybody can progress. Not everybody can be Mr. Olympia, but everybody can get leaner, everybody can get more muscular. But, but if you do stuff your body and your brain is not designed to do, then you won't get maximum results and you will aid hate every single minute of it and you will start to believe well I'm not built for this and then you're gonna look for something else you're gonna look for drugs which I did when I was younger so it's it's, it's really a, a like a bad situation so the more you get to know yourself physically and neurologically psychologically the more you have a, the better your chance of finding the best recipe for you to get the best results possible so how do you identify people then right I would imagine a lot of people kind of self-select you know like yeah. what they find that they like and put themselves into things but you also have a lot of people that come to you and they say I have no idea who or what I am yeah. so how yeah. do you then you know kind of identify where people are and get them into places where they can succeed well I, I do have um, I, I use two different uh, personality tests the, the Braverman assessment and uh, the Cloninger, the, the, the TCI, it's called. Uh, now, both, in my opinion, are somewhat incomplete, so that's why I'm actually working on my own test based on the questions I actually ask question, uh, clients. So normally I send them those tests, and then I will also 
spend an hour or so asking questions just to confirm uh, the diagnostic of the test. Because the, re the, the truth is with tests, some people might, not, might actually answer uh, in a way that they think they need to answer. Uh, especially people who are reward dependent, uh, who want to please people, who don't want to disappoint, then they will answer in a way that makes themselves look good. So that's why it's important to interact with a person. Now, uh, self-diagnostic is always problematic in some extent. Uh, I'll give you an example. The first guy who started uh, working with psychological profiles, neurological profile and, and training was Charles Polykin. Uh, who's in many regard I still consider my mentor today. He pioneered many uh, cool things in training. Uh, now, when he first published his article on, on neurological profile and training about, I think it was at least at least nine or ten years ago, uh, he used the Chinese elements um, to uh, to illustrate your personality. And he said, okay, the fire type, uh, which is dopamine dominant, uh, is, is the best profile for power sports. Now, at the time, I was still doing Olympic weightlifting as well as doing mostly heavy work. So I was I would read the descriptions. Oh yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me. And when I actually did the Braverman test, which he uses, I kind of knew which answers to answer to get that dopamine dominance profile. So just because I wanted to be dopamine dominant. I actually find a resemblance in the description as, oh yeah, that's me, that's me. In reality, I'm not that. Uh, I'm reward dependent. I'm more adrenaline driven than I am dopamine driven. But that's why the tests are useful, personal communication is useful. But then again, uh, it brings me to, I think, the number one problem in the personal training industry, uh, especially live coaches when you work with someone like in a gym. Uh, Coaches are not intellectually involved when they're coaching. Coaches are counting reps. Coaches are watching their iPhone. Coaches are talking about their weekend. Coaches are eating on their female clients. Uh, everything your client do in the gym is an occasion or an opportunity to gather data. Data about which muscles are weak. I mean, I'm looking at your squat. Well, if your sticking point is at a certain position, if your body is switching a certain way, then it gives us is give it gives me clues about which muscles might be strong, which muscles might be weak. If I if I miss that because I'm just counting your reps, how can I select the best exercises to fix your weaknesses? I can't. That's a that's but that's only one thing. The other thing is coaches need to look at non-verbal signs when their clients are training because most clients they will not tell you that they're not enjoying a training uh, they will always uh, are you feeling that exercise oh yeah it's fine it's fine they will not tell you that they don't like it they will not tell you that you don't feel it especially those who are uh, I have five profiles and the reward dependent there are two of them and then there are avoidance anyway three of the five profiles will not tell you if something is not working or if they're not feeling an exercise, if they're not lacking something because they don't want to disappoint you or they're not looking for conflict or discussion. Uh, so if you're not paying attention to nonverbal cues, how can you know if that person is actually 
fitting with that workout. Look at body language. Are, are, are they like sloped forward? Are they are proud? Uh, are they walking around or just seated, being seated down? Are they talkative? Is their head down? Do they, are they making eye contact? All these signs can give you clues about your, your, your client's mindset when training, and that also gives you clues about if the training is optimal. Now, of course, the more experience you have, the easier it is to diagnose these things. So that's why the tests are useful. The one I'm creating will be actually available for free on my website, so people will have a good idea of where they stand. Uh, but then again, it's only first part of the process. Personally, the, I, to really, really realize who I was, I really needed to work hard on myself. And really, isn't it what it's all about? I mean, it, it, sure, it, it's fine to look great, but you know, I, I, well, I, I, well, I don't like a reward dependence or self-confidence issue. So saying that I still look pretty good is really hard for me to tell. So I still look pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm lean and fairly muscular, uh, but I, I used to look like awesome, like I, when I was like huge and, and super muscular and I would stand out anywhere I went. People would say, well, okay, you, you have a great physique, do. I was so unhappy all the time. I mean, oh, you have no idea about I felt just because inside I, I, I didn't know who I was. I had these urges and I, right, just for example, my wife would go, let's say one evening and she would say, well, I'm going out with three of my girlfriends. We're going to the restaurant, right? No big deal, right? I mean, just three girls going to a restaurant, then coming back two hours later. Well, it made me freak out. It felt me like I felt, I mean, I, I can't even describe the feeling I was getting inside of me. It was pain, man, it was pain. And I couldn't understand because I'm not a jealous person. I'm not jealous, so I couldn't understand. And I would actually act up on that and actually ruin the evening for her by making her feel guilty about leaving me alone at home. I didn't understand what was happening. In reality, is that my, my neurological profile? Again, I need to feel like I'm the center. I need to feel I am important because in my mind, I'm not important. So if I'm not getting that outside feedback of you are a great person, I want to be with you, then it hurts me. It hurts me bad. When she get when she had fun with other people than me, even though they were girls, it made me feel like crap, and I acted up on it. But now, with the work I've done on myself, I realize what was happening. And now, even though I still get that little pinch, emotional pinch again, well, I know where it's coming from, I know the reason, and I don't act up on it. So now, our relationship's much better. We, we used to have big issues when it comes to family holidays because uh, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I would be an asshole when I was in her family because big family reunion with people who didn't really know me or respect me for what, who I was made me feel super insecure, man. So when I got there, I, I was really unpleasant, but now I know it, so I can actually act up on it and be sociable and be a nicer person. So, and I'm much happier person, and, and you know what? I don't have the pressure of trying to impress everybody by out bench pressing everybody now, because I'm, I'm more comfortable with the person I am, and I'm doing the type of training I enjoy. I, mean, I used to be all about like super heavy training, right? All, all about singles, doubles, triples. You know what? The only reason 
why I would do such heavy lifting is that I had the need to show everybody I was stronger than they were. But you know what? I did not enjoy the training. It made me feel bad. It crashed my nervous system. I would feel drunk after my workout. I would lose balance. It was like really bad feeling. And now I'm training the way I like and I'm comfortable, I'm happy. I don't burn down, I'm not crashed, I don't have any depression feelings. I don't have bad food cravings. I have, I used to, I, okay, my personal record, personal record, 26 pounds in six hours. That is not an exaggeration. I actually measured <laughs> myself for the interest of science. And the thing is that, you know, Brett, you know that just as I do, it, it wasn't all absorbed, right? Because you can't absorb 26 pounds of food. It was mostly stomach content. So the next day, I can say with 100% certainty that I, I, I understood the, the pain of childbirth. Uh, <laughs> I found that? That, oh, man, that's good. Yeah, so I found that many of these, like, nutritional abuses, like binging out on sugar, burgers, whatever, were really mostly because I was so unhappy, so stressed out all the time. So I, I naturally, instinctively crave sugar to get that serotonin raised to feel calm, feel better about myself. Well, now I don't have them. Now, actually, my, my if I cheat on something, it's on rice cakes, believe it or not, right? This is, I'm boring now, but it's because I'm more comfortable myself. And I believe that if you find a way to work with who you are and accept who you are, many of these misbehaviors that we see, uh, turning to drugs, turning to well, performance enhancing drugs, but also uh, creational drugs, uh, binging out on crap food, many of these things will go away once you're comfortable with the person you are, in my opinion. In at least from my experience. And I think that many, for example, look at the fitness industry, people who are preparing for figure or physique competition, these people are never happy, man. They look awesome, but they feel dead inside. And that's because they, everybody does the same thing, right? It's all the same type of diet, the same excessive cardio, same excessive training. And last time I competed in bodybuilding, at the end of my prep, I love training. Training is my passion. It's my life. I, I always train. At the end of my prep, I could only train 15 minutes. After 15 minutes, I had to go home. After the competition, I was in California, like in the mecca of training, the, the, the shirtless capital of the world. Well, I didn't train for four months, and I would eat fast food every single day. I just couldn't help it. That's how messed up neurologically I was, and my brain was looking for ways to just to feel better, feel, feel better. So if you find a way to get the results you want while maintaining an optimal psychological state, then all actually getting in shape will not be perceived as an effort anymore. You won't feel like crap all the time. I'm not saying you're going to feel good because if you're trying to get like to 5 or 6% body fat, eventually you're going to feel somewhat uh, like not optimal, but, but you don't have to feel like that suicidal or antisocial. That was a tangent. <laughs> so, you know, it sounds like a lot of what you talk about is, you know, how do we identify who we are, you know, and, and how do we kind of wrap our mind around, you know, our own shortcomings and just kind of identify who we are, how much of that, you know, not very many people are that in tune, right? Yeah. And yeah. how much of that do you think is just lack of ever thinking about that, right? How many of us on a daily basis stop and think, 
okay, this is who I am, and they do some self-investigation and they try to work through it. Uh, I think that from my experience, and again, it depends on the person profile, some people really think about it, but the way they think about it, they do more harm than good. That used to be my case. That used to be my case because you had self-confidence issues, uh, well, super strong imagination. So I could make up stories about myself that you wouldn't believe, man. It was like really, really self-destructive. Then you have other people who are more, they are more dope, more extroverted, more competitive, more winner-like. They have this idealize idea of who they are uh, and they have a hard time seeing what their shortcomings are and they can't be objective with themselves either and then you have some people who are just afraid of admitting their weaknesses because they think it makes them look weak so really and you're right introvert like being able to really go inside yourself and see who you are not everybody is at that point in their life yet uh, that's why I like those tests that's why uh, I, I like to teach people how to read other people so that even if I'm for example let's say I have a client who might not yet be ready to be like, like super deep uh, in self-analysis at least just from observation, uh, uh, just looking at how we interact with people, uh, asking the right questions, I can have a pretty darn good idea uh, of who that person is. I mean, it's funny because every time I give that seminar, uh, I either have people crying or, or making, uh, and I'm, I'm not Anthony Robbins or anything, but <laughs> when you make that realization, sometimes it, it's that powerful. Uh, but I just, like last week, I had one girl in Australia, and she was like long message on Facebook saying, how oh, that completely changed her life. Now she's comfortable with who she is. Now, not everybody will, will have that happen uh, because they're not ready yet. But if the coach understands how to interact with these people, you actually can at least have the training and the nutritional aspect uh, more in line. Um, so. so uh, I guess it's, it's, it's just the beginning of the system. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I don't have all the answers yet. Uh, I, I have what I believe is a pretty good grasp of the science behind what's happening and also a pretty good idea of how to act up on the diagnostic with training and nutrition. But it, the, the system that I'm trying to build is still in its, in its infancy. And really what I want, the last thing I want is to be a guru. The last thing I want is to build a system that you have to use that way. What I want when I'm teaching, and that's why I, I'm giving all these seminars, that's why uh, in a month I'm going to shoot 80 video capsules. It's going to be for free, of course. Is that I want coaches or people to take the information and make the system their own, connect that with their own experience. And if they don't agree with my solutions, well, fine, they have a lot of experience. I'm not smarter than they are. I don't necessarily have more experience than they are. I took an interest in that element. I'm presenting how it works. And from that information, I want smart coaches to take the ball and run with it and make their own interpretation of the system. And if they come up with something that's better, a better solution for analysis or interpretation, I want to learn about it because I don't care who has the truth. I just care about learning the truth so I can use with myself and other people. That's really what I'm about. That's great. And what are what are some things as athletes that our listeners that can kind of take away to 
maybe analyze their training program a little bit differently than they've thought about before or a way to kind of measure the um, effectiveness of their training? Well, one thing that, a very simple thing, like not everybody is ready for deep psychological analysis of themselves, but everybody can answer that question. Uh, what drives you, right? Uh, is it winning? Is it being the best? Is it being admired or respected? Or is it avoiding uh, disappointment or avoiding uh, unplanned event, for example. Some people, they will do anything to win. They will do anything to be the number one. They are super competitive. Now, these people are and they are more of the type one. Could be a type 1A, type 1B. So right off the bat, it's the first way to, to like separate the group. If your main motivation is being respected, being admired, that you feel the need to please other people, uh, then you are type two more reward dependent, could be type 2A, type 2B, that, that's, again, that we can go to this level. Uh, and if your main motivation is avoiding harm, you absolutely want to be safe, you don't want any bad surprises, you want to plan everything so that nothing uh, bad will happen, then you're mostly a type 3. Uh, so that right off the bat, it can give us an idea. Now, type 1 are more intensity driven, type 1 are point A to point B kind of guys. They are neurally driven. Type A are all about uh, getting that strong neural response. So they will respond better to high intensity loading. They respond better to explosive work. They don't respond that well to mind-muscle connection, pump work. I'm not saying they can't do it, but it's only at the end when they already done the, the heavy intensive work. These people actually do fairly well cheated reps because for them it is getting at the stronger possible neurological response that gives the brain what they need and if the brain gets what it needs then they stay motivated if they stay motivated they train harder now the, the type 2 are more muscle dominant so the type 2 are more after that mind muscle connection getting a, a, a good pump feeling the exercise slower tempo see uh, now the type three are more about precision and mastery. They need to feel in control. They need to feel that they are doing a movement perfectly. They are perfectionists. They are technique geeks. So right off the end, they, they can do more volume. They can do less frequency, but more volume. So I, I actually have a slide that I, that I actually systemize pretty much everything. I, it's on a spectrum, type one, they're type one A, type one B, type two A, type two B, type three. And, and it's, it's a spectrum. At the left of the spectrum is intensity. On the right is volume. On the left is frequency, higher frequency. On the right is lower frequency. Uh, and uh, so that gives right up, you have right up the bat the kind of training you should be doing. Uh, as far as risk intervals, it's also included. Again, keep in mind that when I give the seminar, it's 12 hours where I explain every profile in the strategy. So it's kind of hard uh, to explain it all. And even in the article, and the article is published on T Nation uh, with a five part series. Uh, it's not even 20% of the material I cover. Uh, so and I, I don't regret putting the article out there. Honestly, it would have been like a 12 part series, but most people, you know, our readers are right. They, they, they have an average reading span of like two minutes. 
So it was really more about I wanted to put the system out there, uh, and I know it's going to be more than seminars and the video capsule that's going to put the message across, as well as I'm, when I'm going to have the, the, the online test so people can actually use it uh, and see where they fall and then compare it to the, uh, the more subjective analysis of the profile. Interesting. And one of the things I think um, that comes up a lot in some of the articles I've read and some of your videos is talking about too much volume and how that can yeah. be one of the main killers for you know the natural trainee or natural lifter um, and I know we have a lot of people who a lot of our listeners are just gym killers and am I doing enough type people and um, so what are some of the ways to kind of keep an eye on potential overtraining and how to kind of keep volume where it's not uh, hurting your progress I, it, that, that's that's a good question, and it's let's first examine why excessive volume can be a bad thing. Uh, and really, the reason why excessive volume is a bad thing actually does depend on your profile. And also, the reason why you're doing too much volume will depend on your profile. So, the strategy you will use to prevent that excessive volume will, will depend from one individual to the other. For example. The type one that I mentioned, the type one competitive, extroverted, uh, like uh, adrenaline activities. Now, now, these people, when they do too much volume, it's because they want to do everything to win. They feel it's necessary to be the best. Uh, the type two, the reward dependent, they want to be respected, they want to be admired. These are the ones who are at the greatest risk of becoming stimulus addict. They become stimulus addict for two reasons. The first reason is that they want to look good. They want to impress people. Now, you guys know that getting visual changes in your physique take time. So if your main motivation for training is looking good and your physique doesn't change fast, then you have to look for another way to feel good about yourself. And say, well, I'm the hardest worker out there. Well, that's a way to make yourself feel good about yourself. So these people, that's the first reason why they can become stimulus addict. The second reason is that the second type of personality, the one that I am, the reward dependent, they have a low baseline, no adrenaline level, which explains their lack of self-confidence. But their receptors are super sensitive. So when they get that adrenaline increase from training, they feel super good about themselves. Kind of like me when, when I used to speed back then, right? So they are at risk doing too much training because the training actually makes them feel better about themselves, feel good, feel confident, feel the way they would like to feel all day long. And also I could even have another element, they are muscle driven. So if they feel their muscle being full and being uh, pumped and all that stuff, it, it reinforces that well-being and they want more of it. So these are the reasons why these people can become stimulus addicts. Now, the type 3 are the less likely to become stimulus addict because uh, they are more conservative and they are great at following a plan. So if you give them a plan, they will follow it. They don't like to go off script. But if they are left by themselves, the only reason why they go do too much volume would be that they need to feel competent in a lift. They are technique geeks. So they could end up be doing like sets after sets after sets after set of squats just because they don't feel like they're mastering the technique properly. So again, so that's three different reasons uh, for being excessive. So you, when you understand that, then you can find strategies that will give, give these people what they need. 
for example, a reward dependent, they need to feel uh, good about themselves and they also need an adrenaline increase. So if you have a really fast workout pace, if the rest intervals are short, you're in superset, drop set, uh, things that have a high density component, they get the adrenaline increase so they do feel good. If you have uh, technique method, uh, training methods that increase mind-muscle connection, slower tempo, isometric hold, pausing, squeezing for 30 seconds, then doing your reps, stuff like that, increases that muscle awareness, increase the pumps, it gives them what they want. So they don't have to do the volume after volume for to get what they want. Now, the type one, it's a bit harder because they want to do everything possible to win. So, so it's kind of hard to convince them that doing less uh, can, can can be more effective. So you actually have to find objective ways to show them that they are progressing just fine. Now, the main problem for uh, doing too much volume will depend on the person. Uh, type three, right? type three are those who are, are the more anxious you are naturally, okay? the more you are someone who worries, the more you are someone who overthinks things. Uh, normally it's the type three and the type two Bs, like, like me. Uh, these people, because they are more anxious, they overproduce cortisol pretty much throughout the day. They are the ones who will produce the most cortisol when training. So for them, excessive volume, the number one problem is cortisol production, which of course, uh, will decrease muscle growth. When it comes to the, not the type A, the type well, one, 1A, 1B, or the 2A even, those who want to win, uh, though these people are dopamine driven. Now these people have a fairly low level, baseline level of dopamine, but their receptors are super sensitive to it. So what happens is when they train, especially or when they do stuff that raises dopamine, they become addicted because their, their receptors are super sensitive to it. So what happens is, again, the same thing as with the adrenaline guys. When they're training, especially with high intensity, they get that pleasure response, that dopamine response, and they want more and more and more. But if they continue on too much, then their dopamine will crash. The more adrenaline these people produce, the more they are at risk of crashing their dopamine because dopamine is a precursor to, to, to adrenaline. So if I'm producing tons of adrenaline, then I, I'm crashing down my dopamine. So that's why these people, if they do too much volume, they can actually do the volume in training because they, they are competitive, they are have a lot of energy, but the next day they will feel like they're drunk. They work out, hang over, they can't train, lose some motivation. I had an extreme case, uh, a guy who went to the Olympics at bobsleigh, the number, the maximum number of sets he could do in a workout was six to nine. Not six to nine sets per exercise for the whole workout. If he exceeded that, he felt like crap the next day and just couldn't train. He just couldn't get his ass out of bed. That's because his dopamine was crashing and other things. That's also why these people can't take stimulants, for example, because it will also crash their dopamine. Type one are great at tolerating stress. These people are the people who have ice in their veins. That's why they're great at competition. They don't choke under competition. They get better in competition because they have an amazingly good reaction to stress. But, so their problem is not excessive cortisol production. Their problem is mostly crashing their dopamine. They're at risk of neurological overtraining, much more so than physiological one. So it's really a matter of finding out what are the main drawbacks of doing too much volume, what are, what are the symptoms 
Is it feeling like crap? Is it holding water, right? Because personally, okay, me, my, my problem is overproduction of cortisol when I do too much volume. So my number one symptom for me when I'm, I know that I did too much is after the workout, I actually look a lot worse. Uh, I, I hold water, I look flatter, I look smaller, and to me that's an indication of cortisol release. Actually the same thing happened when I give a seminar and, and to some extent that podcast. You know, I can't watch myself in the mirror after the podcast because I will look about five pounds fatter and five pounds smaller because water will get out of muscle and get subcutaneous because of the increase in cortisol. That's why when I give seminars, I always wear a long sleeve shirt because I know by the end of the seminar, I look like crap. <laughs> Again, that's the reward dependent side of me. I need to impress other people, right? Um, so when you know those symptoms, then you can have a better idea uh, of when you've done too much and what you can do to solve the problem. Yeah, and I think that's really fascinating stuff. And that concept kind of can apply regardless of somebody's training age or gender. And would you kind of work somebody who's brand new to training or male or female and start them right into what's your neurological profile, what's going to be the system that motor or the, the you know the training program that motivates you the most that allows for the highest intensity uh, yes and no uh, uh, yes because all right, what is the most when you're getting somebody new to training in my opinion the two most important things are get them addicted to training right? you want them to stay in the long run not just train for six weeks and then leave so you want them to to be addicted to training, you want them to love training. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is you want them uh, to give to, to learn how to give their maximum. Now, of course, if you're having someone brand new who doesn't yet know proper lifting technique, well, you can't say, "Well, we're going to use 90% of your one RM for three sets of three, for example." That's just not going to work because. First of all, they don't know how to produce a real max effort. Second, they don't have the technique to do that safely. But there is still clues that will, uh, for example, what kind of workout pace can you use? Like, uh, like we were, the type two respond better to a really fast workout pace. The type three doesn't because they need to feel secure. Uh, the type two likes supersets. They, they like alternating exercises. The type three likes to do all the sets of one exercise at the same time because they need to master that movement. Uh, so I'm not saying that you need to push the envelope as far as the intensity or, or how hard you train, but you should still try to fit the program as best as possible to what that person will naturally be attracted to. In fact, I, I would say that for newcomers to training, it's probably even more important because Honestly, when you're starting out training, you will progress with pretty much any kind of program. So you don't have the burden to find the optimal training program right now. But to me, finding the most enjoyable program is more important for, for the, the, these people so that they can stick with it for a longer time. Uh, they are a blank slate, so might as well start them on, on the right path. So of course, I believe that with people starting out, Mastering exercise technique is at the forefront of everything, but a second element would be use a structure that will fit what they will like the most. Uh, but again, the profile of health, but it's also about a lot about analyzing 
how they are reacting to training, their body language, all that stuff. But, uh, but the profile, in fact, I got a question a few weeks ago about uh, are the profiles also applicable to children because a lot of coaches were working like we're sports coaches with, with younger kids. And in fact, um, it is my opinion that it is probably even more applicable with children because children have not yet learned to lie to make them, themselves look good. Well, they can, but not to the extent of, of ourselves. So they are normally much more likely to give you honest answer and to act up the real way they are instead of trying to adjust their behavior based on what they think is uh, is asked of them. Uh, same thing with, with women. Women normally are more likely to be honest than men also. So it's yeah, it, it works, but again, it, it, it it's just a matter of the, the real answer. It's not hocus pocus. It's not like a, like a girl magazine, like uh, eat right for your type kind of thing. <laughs> it's really just about like learning what a person responds to, and then playing with that to optimize the response. I'm just offering a way of instead of waiting uh, for six months of experimentation to find out the right answer, then you can drastically decrease the time it takes you to find the optimal training program for someone. Uh, that, that, that's that's what it's all about. Uh, but again, a lot of coaches might not be open to that because they basically do. I, I, one of my and he's a good friend of mine. He actually used to be one of my my uh, my training partner when I competed in bodybuilding. He's a personal trainer. What he does is that he trains himself in the morning, uh, and he writes down his program, and then all of his clients that they receive the program that he himself did uh, on that day. So that that's how we train people. I know. It actually can work because he is a really motivating individual, uh, but many coaches are like that. They just, they have that one system they are clinging to and, and they don't adapt their, their system to other people. And that's fine. They will get great results for people who are like them. Might not work for everybody, but they at least get some success. Uh, but in my opinion, uh, if you can change the way you coach, not just the, the program itself, but how you interact with with your clients, you get better results. Um, some people, right, me myself personally, right? If you if you are coaching me and you are behind me and, and starts, come on, come on, you can do it. One more, one more, let's go. Come on, push hard. I'm gonna take like that ten pound dumbbell and hit you across the head. <laughs> I just hate it. it. It actually makes me want to stop training. I'm not like that, but some people respond well to that, right? So if I had a drill sergeant kind of coach, it wouldn't work for me. But for some people, that's necessary. So in the ideal world, I would pair the best coach with the best athlete. Uh, but in the real life, that doesn't work. So since we can't ask the client to change how they are for us, we have to adapt how we are coaching our clients uh, if we want to get maximum results. Being a drill sergeant or forcing them to follow our orders will work for 8 to 12 weeks. But eventually, uh, it stops working. So it's a matter of do you want to have a great rotation of clients or do you want to stick with the same clients for a long time because they really enjoy working with you. So it's a personal choice. I mean, I'm not saying there's a wrong answer. Personally, I would prefer, well, again, that because, because of my profile, I'm not good at uh, being comfortable with people I don't know because I don't know if they respect me yet. I, I used to do personal coaching, uh, like in-person personal coaching, like 50, 60 hours a week. I actually stopped because it, the, the biggest stress for me 
was meeting a new client. When I, when I saw like a new client on my schedule, dude, for two days, I would stress out. I really did not want to, because I didn't know if he would respect me. I didn't know if he would call my bullshit or whatnot. So, so it was a lot of pressure for me, for my personal profile. Some people can't wait to meet new clients, but for me, it was such a stress. And eventually, I started canceling appointments uh, and getting really bad service. With my clients that I was already comfortable with, I was awesome, got great results. Uh, I would help them solve their problem. Uh, but meeting new client was such a difficult thing to do because of my profile. Now I know my limitations, so I work more on a consultant, consultant basis, only with people I, I know pretty well and with whom I had the occasion of uh, building a relationship with. I prefer to work with coaches now. So I prefer when coaches come up to me and I help them deal better with their clients. I, and I, I feel that I've never been necessarily the best coach as far as uh, motivating people, but I've always been great at teaching and helping other people become the best of who they are. So that's why that's what I'm concentrating on. That's what I really want to do. Uh, and I think that part of being happy is knowing what you're good at and and just focusing on that, being the best you can be at what you enjoy doing. It sounds like a like a self motivation or a self help book, but that's kind of a truth. No, and I think it's you brought up a, an important point, and you kind of see this at like commercial gyms where like the the best bullshitters have the most clients when it comes to the personal trainers at like a you know twenty four hour fitness or whatever commercial gym you want to throw out there. Um, so kind of giving. Um, that education to trainers and coaches uh, will hopefully shift the pendulum to, uh, you know, better training I hope. and yeah, hopefully that is the result uh, of, of the work you're doing. Yeah, I was, uh, when Dr. Russell and I were uh, presenting in, in Seattle, um, one thing, because we, we were asked what was, in our opinion, the biggest problem in the industry, and I kind of, like, brushed up on it earlier, uh, but John said that the big problem is that uh, we don't have many professional coaches anymore. We have guys with like bro physiques who wants to make easy money. Uh, you have people who are Instagram stars who wants to make easy money. You have people who are in between jobs, they like training, they want to make easy money. Now, these people don't invest in education. These people don't go the extra mile into really knowing their clients. These people don't, do, don't go the extra mile into designing programs that really fit in individuals. Because what they, they're offering is fast food training. And it works. I mean, it, it, you can survive on McDonald's. I mean, you can survive on McDonald's. I mean, you, you're not going to die. Well, not in the short run. Uh, but I'm not saying it's the optimal way to reach optimal health. So same thing with training. I mean, a personal coach will put great value in personal education, uh, will invest a lot of time in knowing his client, uh, in designing the proper program, building a relationship with a client uh, where confidence is high. Uh, but then you have all these uh, fast food guys that because they, are, they look good, they have great physique, they are extroverted, they are great at, at the making social connection. They easily get clients. But how long are these clients staying with them? 
a month, two months, maybe three. But since they're good at getting clients, and because at these commercial gyms, you have such a great rotation of clientele anyway, it will never lack clients. It will always be able to get new ones. But to me, that's not coaching. To me, that's being a babysitter for people who train with weights. I mean, it, fine, you can make a great living with it, but me, that, that pisses me off because it gives a bad name to the whole personal training industry. I mean, we're trying to become professional. We come, we're trying to be recognized as a profession who have uh, like a board or something like that to make us legitimate. But then you have these douchebags who, who can earn great living, who since they're more vocal, they're actually the ones who get most recognition or the most popular. So when people think of personal trainer, that's who they think about. They don't think about the people who spent years studying in college or doing hours upon hours of personal research uh, or spending thousands of dollars on personal education. They, they think about the guy with big arms and a nice stand and spiky hair. Oh, it's, oh you have spiky hair, right? Yeah. yeah oh, you don't have a nice stand. <laughs> nope. My hair's always just a mess. I can never be bothered to do it. So. <clears throat> I, I used to be. That, that's what I did. Remember, just you can actually see you can see my psychological evolution by the the, the 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 darkness of my skin. The more comfortable I am with myself, the more pale I am. Uh, I was a, a trainaholic, but I was also a tenorexic. Uh, when I was like super dark, I believed that I was white. I need to go tanning, man. I was going to the tanning booth twice a day. I mean, it was really bad. I mean, I, my, my wife. And I went on vacation in the Dominican Republic, and uh, we took pictures, of course. And when we came back, uh, she showed me a picture of me in the hotel room. I said, man, I was super dark. That was a great vacation. I said, no, that's the day we arrived in the Dominican Republic. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny. We have a joke in my house of, if you can't tone it, tan it. <laughs> <laughs> the two best ways. The two best ways, and I'm gonna make you a personal attack on you, Mike. The two best way of looking jacked without, like, without having to be jacked, is getting a tan and getting a sleeve tattoo. Tattoo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of had a feeling that was coming. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not against you, but but you you see a lot of these people actually. You, tattoos and being tan make you look a lot bigger than you are. So I really have to go tanning and get a tattoo again, especially my on my left arm because it's injured now. So do something about that. Maybe that's the secret. Maybe that's the next get rich quick scheme, right? Well, do a bunch of before and after transformation pictures of people with tans <laughs> and tattoos. <laughs> people don't even need to be seen in person now with Instagram. So with, with Photoshop tattoos and tanning, anybody can look like Mr. Olympia. So yeah. My angle lighting. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. This was this was a blast, and uh, this was great to see the side of you that I've never seen, and great to have a conversation. Is there any kind of last-minute things you want to leave people with, or any uh, pearls well, or nuggets of wisdom? Hopefully, I'm going to be back soon, because we still have to talk about training. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get you back on soon, and we can talk about uh, the training pieces at some point. Yeah, absolutely. If there was one message I could say was that now I'm, I'm really happy about doing these podcasts because uh, I, I really want people to know who I am for real. Uh, I'm not this fake person. I'm not this uh, like guy who thinks he knows everything. A lot of people have bad opinions about my, of me because of that. I mean, and it's probably the way I was branded. I don't know. Uh, 
I have zero ego. I just like to talk about training and just shooting shit with guys like you and who love training. So the more opportunities like this, and I really thank you for this one, uh, the, the happier I feel. That's awesome. Yeah, man. absolutely, man. It was a it was a huge honor. So we we really appreciate your time, and we'll definitely get you back on soon, and we can talk a little bit more about training pieces. But I think this was super valuable, and a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. Appreciate it. Man. Absolutely. Thanks, Christian. We appreciate it. All right. Take it was care. a blast, guys. Take care, guys.